0: That's heritageradio.network.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Firesider, a health tonic based on the traditional New England cure all of raw apple cider vinegar and honey. For more information, visit firesider.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Why is food so important? Well, other than the fact that it nourishes our bodies, we know it, it brings us together, it's a way to celebrate. But what goes beyond that, the real meaning of food? Maybe we'll find out today. On a Taste of the Past. Hi and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host Linda Palacio on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And I know it was kind of a lofty question. Why is food so important? What is the meaning of food? Well, a lot of people spend a lot of time studying food, studying its significance, hosting radio shows about it, having an entire network devoted to it. Food is very important to us, and it goes a lot deeper than just what we put on our plate. Today, I have with me someone who has spent a lot of time studying food and not through necessarily uh, traditional means. She is Lucy Long. And Lucy is an internationally respected editor, the author of Culinary Tourism and Regional American Food Culture, along with numerous articles on foodways. And, and she has recently um, edited a, the newly published book called The Food and Folklore Reader, which is the first comprehensive introduction to folkloric methods and concepts relevant to food. Lucy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's, it's very interesting because food, food and the meaning of food, um, people don't realize a lot of times that that's what they're studying or going after, but you have made that um, part of your, your basis of all your work. In fact, founding the Center for Food and Culture, um, as well what when and this is the food and folkloric folklore reader, and folkloric studies are something I think that few people really know about or understand, even though they precede so many other faculties of study. Can you tell us a little bit about folkloric studies?
3: Yes, yes, and I realize. A lot of people misunderstand the word folklore. It's not that they misunderstand it, but it's used in a lot of different ways. But it is—it's an academic discipline. Um, I actually have a PhD in folklore from the University of Pennsylvania, um, and I studied anthropology, sociolinguistics, um, a lot of different fields, cultural studies. So, but you know, so folklore is an actual discipline. And it studies, the definition that I like to use of what folklore as a discipline studies, it looks at the products and processes by which individuals meaningfully connect to their past, place, and other people. So, that's kind of vague. No, but not <laughs> it's, Well, it's, not
2: really, because it's, I mean, it, the food and and well let's say well culinary history which is you know what i spend my life doing in the culinary history started in the folkloric departments really and it's all yeah. about you know how food as you say how it connects to our lives everything from our dining habits to the sourcing of food to to you know sharing it with others i mean there's so much involved in in food in our lives for sure when you yeah. first started um, developing food studies courses, you started developing them at Bowling Green State University in the mid '90s, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. And um, that at that time, I have to say, it was really the earliest disciplines to ever take food seriously. What did you encounter at that time? Before, prior to that time?
3: Well, when when I was in graduate school in Philadelphia in the mid nineteen eighties. We we used food as a subject to study cultural processes and a lot of, you know, theories and concepts and all. Um, you know, but people didn't take food seriously. Right. So so what I was doing was was using food to study ethnicity, um, regional cultures, to study concepts. And then I was teaching in the Popular Culture Department at Green State University, and I was teaching courses on things like material culture and narrative or introduction to folklore. So I would always include a section on food, and I started discovering that those those are really fun sections (laughs) (laughs) to to teach. Um, You know, students could relate to food. It's very. It can be very, very down-to-earth, so you can talk about very theoretical ideas through food. Um, and, and we frequently would have events around the food so that we would have fun. We actually kind of had a sense of community that would develop around the food, um, even though they still had to take tests and be graded. Um, so that got me thinking more and more about how to use food to teach these concepts, um. So and and people, people dismissed it. You know, they. Some of the other academics and, and other departments would would laugh at it, or they say, "Well, you know, isn't this something that you should be doing in the nutrition department? Isn't this home mm-hmm. economics." Um, a very good example of this Is that in the late nineteen nineties. Um, see, there were there were two things. I applied for a grant to the Humanities Council to do a collection project on local food traditions in Northwest Ohio, and the response to the application was, "Food is not a humanities subject." Hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so which actually led me to do a major National Endowment for the Humanity-sponsored project on food as a humanities subject. <laughs> uh. So discussing you know, how, how we can look at, at humankind's search for meaning right. you know, through food. Um, you know, but, but also, Newsweek had, had one of their little essays on silly things that are happening in universities today, and it talked about food classes. Um, so you know, I, I like to use things like that as as a challenge. <laughs> so I started developing the classes more and more, and then in 2004, the New York Times had, had a big spread in their Saturday edition, and they focused primarily on my classes and Amy Bentley, who who also went to the University of Pennsylvania and was in American culture studies. Um and it, we we were the two people that the interviewed the most and they were saying, Oh, look how fascinating this is <laughs> <laughs> So, so th- things did things did switch and people started being interested in it, but it still wasn't seen as serious.
2: Right, right. In fact it was I think it was ninety six when Jacques Pepin and Julia Child introduced um their food studies course at Boston University—one of the first first courses that to be accepted in the university as a as an actual um, course—and mm-hmm. I think that's right. Yeah. yeah, and because they were such big name people, of course, it was accepted. But I think it still wasn't taken as seriously as so many anthropologists as we had to call ourselves at that time or other people um studying history would have liked it to be taken um so i, I applaud you for for you know sort of keeping barreling your way through and and making these things happen uh, <laughs> um, food well the importance of food i mean there's so many um concepts of, about community and identity that are that where food plays such a big role and, and um, I'm thinking you mentioned in the book there's there's art, symbol, ritual, communication. Um, what are some of the folkloric methods that are used to, to study food?
3: Well, one of the... there are several things I think that are distinctive about the field of folklore in general anyway. Um, so um and um, there there actually are different kinds of folklorists, like just like the different kinds of anthropologists and different kinds of of, of historians. But the, the history of folklore is that it comes pretty much it it actually was the foundation of anthropology. <laughs> and then and and then there were a lot of anthropologists who were also folklorists in the eighteen hundreds, early in nineteen early nineteen hundreds. Um yeah, but the other strand is literature, um, and it, as a discipline was really developed in Europe, where people were studying peasant traditions and, and peasant cultures, um, so they would collect you know, peasant traditions, expressive forms as, as data. Um, you know, when, when they started doing similar types of, of work in the U.S., well, they're not peasants <laughs> mm. So, so different, different types of questions arose So so folklore has, has these connections to other disciplines But part of what makes it very distinctive Is that it, I guess, two things It is looking, it's looking at individuals At personal experiences And at individual interpretations of events um, material objects of rituals. So it, it looks at the individual as an agent in creating meaning. And, and that people act upon what they think something means. So, in order to understand processes and understand what has happened, we need to talk to people and understand what they think happened and what it means and what how it impacted their lives and how they then acted. So that means there's there's a lot of field work which involves talking to individuals. Mm. So we, we we don't we tend to not do a big survey like a sociologist would. Uh, and we do community studies um, just like an anthropologist would, but we do tend to focus more on the individual. Um, the other thing that distinguishes folklore from some of the other disciplines um, that, you know, and we're 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 all very connected and very intertwined. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's kind of hard to to draw these hard and fast lines. But the other thing that distinguishes um, folklore as a discipline, particularly the folkloric study of food, is that. We pay attention to food as an aesthetics activity and event. So we look at creativity and artistry. Um, and so part of what that means in terms of food is that if someone says, I eat this because I like it, we do look at liking and taste as an aesthetic experience, hmm. um, and that, that is shaped by all sorts of historical things and and power structures. But on an individual level, too, it's an aesthetic experience that can transcend all of those histories and structures. Um, But then then also, part of... folklore is very, very grounded in the field of sociolinguistics, and part of our understanding of of how people... um, Create anything. You know, if you're creating a recipe, for example, we can look at this from a sociolinguistic performance model. Mm. (laughs) And what what that means is that every time a person is making any kind of choice, they they are drawing, first of all, from a pool of all the choices available to them. You know, so so say, say, for example, you're hungry, you want some breakfast, okay? Depending on your culture, you're going to think of breakfast, okay? Pancakes, eggs, and toast, okay. However, if you think breakfast and you have grown up in Korea, you think rice, kimchi, mm-hmm. fish, mm-hmm. okay. So, you know, so that's that's how your culture gives you this kind of pool of resources to choose from. So, and then you. You look around at the immediate context and say, "Well, you know, I would like to have bacon and eggs. You know, however, I only have eggs in my house, so I'm going to have eggs. You know, or I have a vegan living in my house, so I'm not going to have have eggs and bacon. I'll just have the toast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, you know, so so every single action that every single choice that people make." is taking into account that that original pool of choices available and then the context. Okay, and this isn't something that, you know, we don't work through this every single time we have a choice. You know, we're trying to decide coffee or tea. Right, <laughs> right. You know, we don't think, oh, my, my cultural background, <laughs> a lot of this is very implicit. You know, but we're using, we're very creative when we're doing that. You know, it's not... It's not just based on logic or economics. You know, we're, we are taking into account aesthetics and our own creativity.
2: Right. So it's and, interesting because this, this is, a, it, I want to say, um, all of these things and the food ways uh, in a broader sense. Certainly there were historic studies on regionality, what people ate. Well, the the America Eats Project, I mean, that... People went out, and yeah. that was years and years ago. But they wanted to know more. It was more about availability. What did people actually eat, and what was you know what what um, separated the regions from one from another, made them distinctive. But you're talking. Oh. This is this goes much deeper. This is this is taking into the an account into account, as you say, materiality. The whole, the the the. Uh, Sociolinguistic, as you say, the sociolinguistic model and the and the whole the individual and and that I think is very important to know. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, and you know the the
3: the collection projects that folklorists have done. You know, they um, they were collecting data. So some people just stopped with the collecting, partly because you start getting involved well, they, in yeah. these things, and there's just so much. And and that, and that frequently, if you're working with individuals, there's so much to be done. It's hard to keep going and, mm-hmm. and going further, you know. But ultimately, the question of well, what does this stuff matter? You know, why why do this? It, it all comes down to looking at at how people were using food to make their lives meaningful. Mm. Um, you know, beyond there, there are times people. People eat just to survive, and there are plenty of people who are not intentionally using food as either an expression of identity or as artistic expression you know but they are still expressing their identity and their circumstances right. their values their histories through through their food that's right you know, so, so you know, I guess part of what folklorists do is we look more we, we look at both those what we would call the implicit Expressions of identity and artistry, as well as the explicit ones. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, and how and how important are oral histories in much of the studies?
3: They they are very very important. Um, and I, I should mention that the folklorist approach oral history very different differently from public historians or historians because um, what folklorists tend to be looking for in oral history are people's perceptions and interpretations of what happened. Mm. So we're, we're collecting their stories because they act upon what they think happened. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> yeah. So, and, and then that's, that, that's kind of different from in public history. It's more, we're, we're, trying, we're trying to sort through, well, what actually did happen? You know, and these stories don't match up. You know, who actually was there? So, they're kind of different purposes, and then it ends up being a different relationship right. between the interviewer and the, um, we, we always we refer to them as community scholars.
2: Right. Interesting. Well, I want to explore um, some of the topics that you've included in the reader um, for us when we come back after a brief break. So stay with us. And when we come back, we're going to hear more about the Food and Folklore Reader.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Fire Cider. Did your grandmother ever tell you to drink raw apple cider vinegar? It's good advice and more common than you may think. For generations of New Englanders, a tot of vinegar was a morning ritual. Taken daily, a tablespoon of unfiltered apple cider vinegar can help support immune function and digestive functions. To the base of certified organic apple cider vinegar, Fire Cider added whole raw certified organic oranges, lemons, onions, ginger, horseradish, habanero pepper, garlic, and turmeric. They let this mixture steep for six weeks at room temperature to preserve the living vinegar culture and delicate flavors of the ingredients. Lastly, they blend a generous helping of raw wildflower honey into the mix. The result is potent but balanced, offering layers of sweet, tart, and spice. Firesider tastes great on its own or as an addition to tea, juice, or salad. Firesider ships direct from their online store and is available at over 500 locations nationwide. Use their store locator to find one near you and ask for a free sample. For more information, visit firesider.com.
2: I we're back with Lucy Long um who is, who has just the, um, edited a newly published book called The Food and Folklore Reader and you know often um I do these shows where because so many times listeners write in and say well what you know what would you tell me to look at or read to pursue a particular study in in culinary history or food history or um, now we have you know folklore and food and this I thought was the perfect um topic and the perfect book and, and obviously the perfect guest to talk about um, readings and and different avenues of study that people can can pursue. So Lucy what I would like for you to do if you would um, can you explain the different sections of the there are really I guess it would be four or five specific sections of the reader um, with in essays that support that. Would you describe what they are and, and the meaning of them please?
3: Yes, yes. The the book is divided according to um, a definition of folklore that is is usually very accepted by most scholars, by a man named Dan Benamos That is, folklore is artistic communication in small groups. So what I did was um, I have a first section talking about the history of folklore, the history of the study of food by folklorists, and just kind of a, a, a very brief overview of of some of the, uh, the theoretical issues and concepts and methodologies of the discipline of folklore. So that's, that's section one. And then section two looks at small groups um, and concepts of group, folk group, community, and identity. And then section two looks at um, artistic, okay, specifically food is art, symbol, and ritual. Um, section four is then communication. So food is communication, performance, and power. And then, and then section five kind of takes, takes all of that and looks at, well, what can we do? What have folklorists done with these ideas, um, and what can we do in the future? In terms of food, you know, so that that section is is called public folklore, which, which is a whole discipline and professional field, um, as well as applied folklore, which is the idea of just applying folklore concepts anywhere you are. Um, so, what I, what I've tried to do is kind of tackle some of the the folklore theories um, that are relevant to each of those ideas. And the introductions and discussion questions, um, that I include, you, know, try, to, you know, try to, try to, I really try to summarize a lot of those ideas. And I mean, just, you can't possibly get it all in there. Right. <laughs> right. So, and then the 40 articles that I include in here, um, are, I'm trying to represent both the breadth of work that folklorists have done and the depth.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, how they work. And you know, and it's and um, the last area uh, that you include in there, you have um, a long essay in there, which is part from your book, and that's on culinary tourism. And I think that that is is a a very good example to give people, to sort of get a meaning of what you mean to you know to give an example of what you mean by some of these applied um, theories of of folkloric studies. Um, because culinary tourism there 's so much that people can identify with in this in their own lives um, yeah. so um let's let 's talk about culinary tourism and what do you mean by culinary tourism first of all well
3: let 's see the the formal definition that that I and this is a very academic definition <laughs> um, is that culinary tourism is the intentional participation in the food ways of an other um, so and you know, that that's basically kind of adventurous eating is eating something that you have never had before um, so part of what I was looking at was a lot of the the scholarship on on tourism, Um, looks at tourism as a result of colonialism and imperialism. You know, now tourism is possible only among people who have a lot of money, and then they usually go somewhere else for vacation and end up exploiting people. And people look at the impacts of that. But I was very interested in, just as an individual, I've, I've lived all over the world, and I love trying other types of food. And, and so reading this literature on tourism and thinking about myself as a person, well, I, I definitely was coming out of structures of power that allowed for me to be in other countries and try other food. But me personally, when I was eating that food, I was, I was enjoying the aesthetic experience, but I, w- I was also meeting people. Through that food and understanding cultures and other people better, so I wanted to look at it from a very personal perspective. What does it mean for an individual to to be a culinary tourist? Um, so, and and then I also was expanding the idea of what is out there available for tourist. Now, this is partly because. Because 30 years ago, I moved, i have been living in Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia, and I moved to a small town in Ohio, and all of a sudden, my my food choices were very limited in terms of all the international foods that I had been, had had access to, Um, but at the same time, the food out here was very, very different. I would go to a salad bar here, and... There was lots of different colors of jello. <laughs> this was very, very exotic for me. Um and I started realizing that you can be a tourist with all sorts of types of food. So that's where I started looking at different types of other so you don't have to just it doesn't have to be another culture. Mm-hmm. It could be another region, it could be another time and place.
1: It could be so, another family. Remember,
3: so <laughs> <laughs> you, know, a, you know, something from the past or the or the future, mm-hmm. so, and I remember getting that idea when I had taken, taken my three children. We were we were at an amusement park, and they were selling astr wasn't astronaut ice cream it was ice cream of the future. All these little little tiny balls of ice cream. I remember like, those. Oh, yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. You know, it was a whole lot of fun, but it cost I don't know four or five dollars just for a little cup. And and because I was saying that's way too expensive, because they're saying, but mom, if we try this, we'll know what it's like to live in the future. And I realized <laughs> this is culinary tourism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Well, it's, um, it it I, has and, and it has become
2: it's <laughs> become a huge business, um, you know, in attracting people. There are. Uh, Travel opportunities to take a cooking lesson, as you said, well in another culture, um, or even within your own community, there are people starting these um, food cooking and dinner associations where you can taste different foods right within your own community. So I think it's yeah. it's that conscious, as you have mentioned, you know that that conscious seeking of of another flavor, another food, another you know and. And how does that relate to you? Um, and I think that's 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 a a whole other you know type of sensory experience yeah. and sensory domain, right? Um, and I like that. But well, how about you mentioned the pa- the um, connecting with the future and connecting with the past? How how does how do these folkloric studies and and maybe even you mentioned culinary tourism help us? Um, Connect with our past and, and really study the history of food or well, or culinary most, experiences.
3: Yeah, and um, mo- most of the most of the articles in the reader and and mo- most folklorists look at traditions and and food traditions. And what we mean by that are um, sets of practices and attitudes that are coming from the past and have continued into the present. And so we look at why do people do those those things? Um, how have they adapted those practices to to fit new circumstances, new conditions? So how do they use those practices to? To give them a sense of being connected to the past, or in, in some cases, people are trying to split with the past hmm. and, and create completely new presents. But even in in that way, the past is still is still present <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because they're, they're thinking about it. You know, so we look at something like like Thanksgiving. Um, you know, this is a a ritual dinner in which people choose menus based on what they've had in the past mm-hmm. and. What it means personally, as well as what is culturally the norm, um, and what is available. So, you know, so what, what we tend to study would be those sets of practices and what, what people say they mean to them, and why they're doing it, why they participate in them. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so we look at the past, um, so we're, we're kind of like historians, but we're much more interested in what the past means in the present.
2: All right. I can see where that too is as, as you had mentioned in in culinary tourism is a, a means of evoking memories and and you just um describe that so well with a thanksgiving dinner all right
3: good. Oh, good well, and i guess the the other the other thing too is that um you know not 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 all folklorists are advocates for for other cultures or activists you know but but part of what I see with culinary tourism. And with folklore studies, is that because we're looking at, at individuals and what things mean to them, this is a, such an opportunity to try to help people identify how they can take steps to change, to change their personal eating habits or to change the local food system, mm-hmm. so or with culinary tourism, i really I really try to see it now as a way to to learn more about the processes of culture, Mm -hmm. to understand more the complexity of food, or to understand more a specific culture's um, approach to food. So so there's kind of an educational um, outreach component to to a lot of us.
2: Well I think um, I agree with you in that um, the foodways, the study of foodways has become so so popular, so big over the past, I guess 20 years or so. Um, mm-hmm. And in this, particularly in this country, and I think it is a great um, vehicle for for change. We've certainly seen it in a lot of food policies. You know, studying foodways, it's it's affected food policies and what's and what, how we're you know how we're growing our foods and what we're doing with our foods and what we put in our mouths and on our plate. Um, in the study of foodways, so much in this country, I think people immediately think of Southern foodways. I mean, certainly the Southern foodways is, is you know, has been a very active organization that has, um, and that is a, a big folkloric um, uh, to, yeah. way of studying, you know, cultures, habits, and and food, uh, it, and so many different. i you know, I mean, you can see so many different uh, books or readers, small pamphlets published on regional foodways. Um, this is, I think, is this something you see continuing or growing?
3: Yes, I think so. As, as, as people start recognizing both the complexity of food and the, the power of food to, to address a lot of different issues, a lot of different concepts, a lot of different identities, I think people... Will be taking it more and more seriously um, and the the academic programs food studies programs are growing
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, they they actually with the recession in two thousand and nine, food studies kind of split into like most university programs, people had to be thinking about how can students actually get jobs <laughs> mm-hmm. so you know so so a lot of the programs started being geared more towards. Either policy, public policy, mm-hmm. connected to systems, or um, even, you know, chefs and, like, restaurant management, tourism. Um, you know, so it kind of split more into almost applied uh, and social science approaches to food systems and the more humanities approaches to understanding the meanings of food. Um you know, but you know, both, both of those branches are, are are going very strong now, and people are very very interested in them.
2: Right. The Students.
3: Right. Yeah, and, you know it. You know it. It was never a um, a popular thing to want to be a chef. You know, and now to be a chef is. Perfectly
2: admirable and, and acceptable. And Be a rock star. Chef is rock star. <laughs> <Right. laughs> <So, laughs> uh, well, it's um, I I think that it's it's um, certainly something that for people to when they think of I think initially when they think of folklore you know they think of. Oh, the study of festivals and lots of people dancing in colorful dresses, and, and not know that, you know, <laughs> not knowing that folkloric studies really, you know, is a bit more serious than that, and that indeed folkloric studies were for earliest discipline to take food seriously, and um, and as you have described so so eloquently, engage academics in discussions of food and culture and society. And and I thank you for putting this book together as well. And I think that it is a wonderful introduction for people, as well as it, more than an introduction. It's you know a, a more in-depth look at at um, food and its greater meaning to us, and why you know why the importance of food, why it is so important. So I mention again, the title of the book is the Food in Folklore Reader. And Lucy Long, thank you so much for for spending your time with us and sharing your insights into the study of of food and culture. And I hope to read more about it. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for listening to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palacio.